Uh, so my name is Sean Sears. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Church, and uh, thank you guys for coming. We are in the second week of our Haunted House series. The idea behind this series is that we're all afraid of something, and that's not necessarily bad. Uh, what we need to be careful of is the kind of decisions we make when they're rooted in fear rather than in, in, in faith. And so that's what we talked about a little bit last week. I've noticed the way that my fears have changed when I was a kid. Uh, raise your hand if you were ever afraid of the dark. When you were a kid, raise your hand if you were afraid of the dark. Raise your hand if you're still afraid of the dark, if we're going to be completely honest. Okay. Uh, so this, this, this morning, actually, uh, I'm laying in bed, and I, I hear uh, the door open and close, and uh, and, and my, my son wasn't, wasn't out of bed yet. I knew that because I can hear him. We have an old house, so we can hear people walking on the floor. And uh, the funny thing was is I was like, I don't think anybody ought to be coming in my house right now. But then I waited for my dog to bark, and my dog didn't bark. So I went back to sleep. That was just stupid. So I, I, like, <laughs> I think a little fear would have been appropriate in that moment. And, and like, no lie, it was like an hour later when Billy Jane woke up, I go, because uh, it was like pretty early, and I go, hey, did you hear the door open a while ago? And she goes, no, and I said, well, I, I think somebody came in, and she goes, oh, that was Cha, she was borrowing our car. So somebody actually had come in our house <laughs> without my knowledge, and I just let them, is what I did, take my TV, please, just don't take my life, right? <laughs> Take my dog, please. You can have my dog and my TV. Uh, just don't hurt anyone. Uh, anyone. Uh, that, but a little fear is a good thing. But as, as you get older, your fears just evolve a little bit. You, you become afraid of, of boogeymen under the bed. Um, I, I don't... Not, not this is true. I, I don't. I don't. If the if the lights are out, I don't like looking. I don't like looking in closets, if, especially if they're big closets. I don't like looking under beds. Uh, I've I've never liked that. I don't like walking into empty buildings with the power li- powers out. Has anybody ever been in a church late at night when the lights are out? Anybody? I don't. Okay, that's. I'm a grown man, and if I'm in a church building and the lights are out, that gets really spooky. Here's, have you ever like started like, like you're, in a, you're in a dark place and like you're a little bit nervous or scared, and then you start walking fast, and you're like, crap, why do you start running fast or walking fast? Because now you feel like somebody's chasing you, but you don't turn around. And like you start walking fast through a big building, and now you're like jogging, and then now you're full on sprint. Right? Anybody else? Like, you just, like, just walk calmly. If there's a murderer, he's going to catch you anyway. Right? Like, I don't know what that is, but if I start walking fast, then I got to start running. And then I'm running as fast as I can, and I'm scared to death. So I, I, don't, I don't know how to get past. I need counseling for a whole lot of things. This is just one of those other things. You get a little bit older, and sometimes you can get scared of bullies. Anybody ever afraid of bullies? Uh, if your hand isn't up, you were the bully. Right? We'll have a whole sermon series on that probably. Okay, not, not anytime soon. I guess, but um, yeah, so you, you, get, you get afraid of, of that, you get afraid, of, like when you're a little kid, you're afraid of like your parents dying, uh, you get a little bit older and your friends start finding boyfriends or girlfriends, and you're like, I'm afraid I'm never going to find a girlfriend, right, and then, and then you, you get married, and, and or you, you, then, then, you, then once you get a girlfriend, then you're afraid she's going to break up with you, and, and then you, uh, you, you become afraid you're never going to find, you know, the right one to marry, or, you know, some of us are like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get married, and then you get married, like you get afraid that they're going to leave or something will happen to you, and then you get afraid you'll never have kids. And then once you have kids, you're afraid something's going to happen to your kids, right? And then, and then you're, you're afraid you're not going to find like the right job for you. And then you're afraid that you're not going to have enough money for retirement. And, and then you're afraid that your parents are going to die again, 
right? You go from like junior high stage where your parents are going to die, and then you get to like your mid-50s and you start worrying about your own parents dying again, and then you worry about, then when I get their age, are my kids going to put me in a nursing home? I'm afraid of that. So now I got to like hook my parents up, or my my kids will go, well, you put them in a nursing home. Why can't I put you in one? I'm like, because I'm a better parent, and I don't know that that would work. I'm just saying like, our fears just evolve. I don't know that they ever, they ever go, they go away. And, and, and I think that there's, there, is, there is healthy fear. Like you should be afraid of doing things illegally, right? You should be afraid of cheating on a spouse. You should be afraid of getting caught if you've done bad things. Like I think you should be afraid of heights. You should be afraid of that. You should be afraid. Like, like it's normal to be afraid. Anybody afraid of flying in a plane? Anybody afraid? Like I fly a lot, but still, like when I'm in a plane, sometimes I'll go, this thing weighs like more than my house. It shouldn't be up in the air. Like I don't, like no matter how old you get, there's always something to be afraid of. And like I said, I don't think that fear is necessarily the problem. It's what we're afraid of and the way that fear may affect the choices that we, that we make. That's, that's the danger. Last week we said that fear has a tendency to exaggerate the problems in our life and we make the problems bigger than what they really are. And, and I would imagine we've probably all done that no matter, no matter how old you are. Uh, fear, fear convinces us that the worst thing that could possibly happen has already happened or is definitely going to happen. So in this moment, our life is being sabotaged and we are emotionally reacting as though the worst has happened when it hasn't. So we, like, we sabotage ourselves because of fear. Fear leads to discouragement, which then leads to hopelessness. Fear keeps us living Living, living healthy. Uh, th- that's why God says more than any other command in the entire Bible, don't be afraid, 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 don't be afraid. Your fear is the reason why you won't fully submit to God. Your fear is the reason why you won't forgive the people in your past because you're afraid that if you forgive them, they will somehow be, be, like they will interpret that as it was okay for them to have done what they did to you. So we're afraid of how they'll interpret our kindness or our forgiveness. Fear is the reason why we're not as generous as all of us consider ourselves to actually be. Fear is the reason why we don't put ourselves out there and serve, serve people. Fear, fear it, 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 it holds us back from becoming the person that God intended us and created us to be. That's why God says, this is the one thing I want you to be on your guard against. Your fear is why you won't risk when I tell you to risk. It's why you won't serve when I tell you to serve, why you won't give when I tell you to give, and why you won't love when I tell you to love. It's your fear. Your fear is going to ruin every good thing God is intending for your life. That's why God says, don't let fear drive the decisions that I'm calling you to make. Don't let fear do this. Faith, then, is exactly like fear, except in its end result. Faith and fear are both confidence that something will happen that you can't prove will happen yet. That's it. Fear says, it, I know for a fact this is going to go badly. Fear says, I know for a fact that this is going to go according to the plan that God has already written for my life. That's it. They're both confidence. It's just confidence in different things. So if you can catch yourself being driven by fear, 
And you can call it for what it is. This is an irrational thought. This is an irrational, this is an unproven expectation that whatever is about to happen is beyond God's control. Then you can make the switch. You can then talk yourself out of that fear by saying, no matter what happens, did God know this was going to happen, yes or no? Then if God knew this was going to happen, did he, does he have this worked into the story of my life, yes or no? And does the story of my life, if I'm obedient to God, end with his glory and my good, yes or no? Then I can keep taking steps. Like that's, that's the secret to making, to making, that, to, to making that, that switch. Uh, fear uh, will cause me to pull away from God when times get tough. And faith is what pulls me toward God when times get tough. Everybody here is going to go through storms. Everybody here is going to, like I was a, terrified of lightning when I was a little kid. We're, we're all going to face thunderstorms. We're all going to face lightning. The object of your confidence determines whether or not, though, you pull away from God during the thunderstorms or you cling tighter to him. That's why God said your fear is a make-or-break emotion in your life that you have got to get on top of because, dang it, it's been on top of you too long. And today we're talking about a different type of fear. We're talking about the fear of rejection. And if I'm going to be honest, <laughs> I hate it when preachers say that because like, does that mean that you lie all the other times you preach? Uh, so I'll be honest this weekend, right? Like, I'm going to go back to being a liar next week. But this weekend, if I'm going to be transparent, that's, that's what I actually mean to say. If I'm going to be, like, to be open with you, I, I think this is the one I struggle with the most. I don't need to go into all of the details because I've shared the story several times over the last few years about my middle school experience. How that they thought I got transferred in the middle of a school year, in the middle of the day, and they thought that this weirdo coming out of the school office was my dad. This was in the early 80s when there were still Jesus freaks going around, and this guy was like wearing a white robe, purple sash, leather sandals, long hair, beard, the whole thing. He looked like that, you know, the white European Jesus doing this with the halo around his head. That's what he looked like. And that guy, when he walked out of the building, shook my hand. And everybody, like, and that's when all the other sixth graders were walking across the parking lot and saw that guy shaking my hand and thought he was my dad. So then I had to go to lunch, and they thought I was the weirdo's kid. Um, and then nobody would talk to me. And, like, that was, like, the next two years of my, of my life. And, and during my adolescence, not having, like, it was, it was, it was a really, really bad experience. Um, some of you might know what that's like to walk up to, uh, you know, a folding table with eight chairs around it, only two kids at the table, and you say, can I sit here? And them say, table saved, right? Like, that's it's just a crappy way to live. And, and so that fear, this fear, this, this, this is me. This is, this is why I am Mr. Funny Guy, you know, in high school or the class clown or like moments get too serious and I'll say a joke to break the tension or, or whatever. Because I, I have this, I have, if, if, if I'm not careful, I have an unhealthy need to be liked. Now, I think all of us want to be liked, right? I mean, all of us want to, <laughs> some of us are like, I don't, I don't care about anybody. <laughs> right? Like we have people on, Brian, you might, no, I'm just kidding. We got a guy, like, I care too much. I think my buddy Brian, he's one of our staff pastors. He might care too little, right? Like, but we, but even Brian, like we all, like everybody here, 
everybody, even those of you guys who say, I don't care what anybody thinks, you got a posture and you bow up every time you say that because for you, they'll either love you or they'll hate you, but they won't ignore you. Right? Like, I will be feared if not loved, but I will not be overlooked. We, we, and I think it's normal to need people. God created us that way. In fact, when you look at the first three chapters of the Bible, it says that it's not good that man should be alone. Like, that's not good. It's not healthy for you. It's not what's in your best interest. The truth is, we crave and desperately need healthy relationships with other people. And for that to be possible, we have to live in such a way that people are attracted to who we are, right? Like, I... I can't be a jerk. That's why the Bible says a man who wants friends must show himself to be friendly. Like the Bible says that. Like there's a re- if you have if you if you don't have any friends, there might be a reason for this. And there's probably something you might be able to fix to to take care of. So there's there's nothing wrong with with the fear of of isolation. I think that's a that's a healthy thing to be concerned about. I'm talking about the kind of fear that motivates me to compromise who I am and who God's called me to be so that you like me. The kind of fear that you and I might have where we're not honest about our opinion when it's asked in class because we know it's a minority opinion and we don't want anybody else in school to pick on us. The kind of fear that keeps you from speaking out when you know that your boss is doing things that are illegal, but you're afraid to say anything because you don't want to get fired because you need that job and that income so badly. That's the kind of fear I'm talking about. The kind of fear that when all of your buddies are talking about things that are inappropriate and then it comes around to you, you don't speak up what you know to be true If they asked you what they thought, you wouldn't say that you didn't think it was cool that they all went to the strip club because you don't want to be picked on, right? You don't want them to make fun of you. It's the kind of fear that if everybody else is talking dirty, you'll talk dirty too so that you can fit in. It's the kind of fear that will cause you to do what everybody else is doing just so that you get invited to the bar after work or after basketball like everybody else. That's the kind of fear we're talking about. The kind of fear of others, what they can do for me or what I need from them that I'm not finding in my relationship with God that causes me to walk away and betray my relationship with God. And this happens far more often than what we care to admit. The truth is you're going to have to choose who you're going to make happy. Because for every choice to say yes to this, you are saying no to other things. And for everything you say no to is going to lead you to a different type of yes. And every type of person you're trying, whose affection you're trying to win is going to alienate you from another type of person's affection or, or respect. Uh, which leads to one of the most famous quotes that Abraham Lincoln uh, ever, ever, ever made. And that was that you can please some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, and if you know it, but you can't please all of the people all the time.
But we spend a whole lot of emotional and mental energy trying to make everybody happy all the time, often without regard to the one person that created us in the first place. Joshua, uh, this is the guy who succeeds Moses, and, and uh, he, he's the next guy. Last, last week, we, we looked at uh, Deuteronomy, uh, and Moses is the guy who's, the, and Moses was warning everybody that the children of those who had rejected God not to make the, the same mistakes that their parents had made. And then, and then Moses is the last one of that generation to die because God kept his promise that if you guys don't trust me enough, to obey me, then you won't get what I have prepared for you. And God told him, and God kept his word. So once Moses died, Joshua becomes the next guy. So then Joshua is now leading all of the people of Israel, all of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now he's about to die, and now we're going to the third generation, the grandchildren of the people who rejected God originally. And then Joshua calls everybody together, just like a generation ago, Moses had called everybody together. And at the end of the book, named after him, the book of Joshua, chapter 24, this is how Joshua wraps up his final speech to the people of Israel before he dies and goes off the scene. And then we have the book of Judges, which is, what is, is how they're, they're led before God after Moses and Joshua die off the scene. But in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, uh, Joshua is giving them two options. And then he says, uh, but if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose who you're going to serve. He says, that's it. Just Just choose. You can't be passive about who you're going to make happy and what you're going to live for. As long as you allow life to happen to you, right, your life is never going to go the way that God intended it because you haven't been intentional in the way that you've lived it. So just make a choice. Quit saying you love God when you haven't chosen up front to live for Him and obey Him. Just let's be honest. If you're not going to choose ahead of time to do the right thing when the moment comes, then when the moment comes, you are going to do the, right, the wrong thing. So let's just admit it. You're going to choose to not follow God. So then name it. Who are you going to choose if not God? Name it. Is it going to be money? Is this going to be your master forever? Wealth. This is going to rule. And I'm just going to, I'm going to call a club a club, a spade a spade, a heart a heart. Now i got to do all four. And a diamond a diamond. Right? I live for money. Let's just be honest. Some of us, if we're going to be completely honest, we live for sex. And if we're going to be honest, we live for comfort, whatever brings us the least amount of immediate pain, and we just ignore the amount of long-term pain this might bring us, because at least right now this isn't difficult. Comfort might be your God. Like, just name it, right? Just be honest up front. That's, that's all Joshua's doing at the end. He says, listen, if it's not God, then just say who it is, Right? Uh, then choose today who you are going to serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or will, you be the, or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell? But as for me and my house, I'm choosing ahead of time. As for me and my, I can't control who you're going to live for and what values are going to drive the decisions you make, but I can control mine. And as for me and my house, I will choose the Lord. Choose who you're going to serve. Choose ahead of time who you're going to serve. But I'm going to serve up front right now. I don't mind naming it. As for me and my house, we're going to serve God. Knowing that there are going to be consequences to that choice. See, that's the thing. 
All of us, I mean, you're in a church on a weekend, and I don't want to say all of us, because every weekend here at Grace Church, I know that there are people who are, who are not religious, and, but you're, you're spiritually curious, and I would say that our church actually is here for you personally, right? Um, but, but those of us who would say that we are, are Christian would say that we live for God, but the truth is the moment our faith starts to cost us something, we bail on our religion pretty quick. It's just true. Um, and, and all Joshua is doing is just calling us out on this. You, you have to, you're either going to disappoint God or you may disappoint others, but you need to decide up front whose opinion of you means more to you. Because if you can't decide this, then in the moment, the moment will run you. You won't control the moment. Each one of us is insecure about something. Just this past week, I reached out to a couple of uh, friends of mine, and I had sent them a text and invited them uh, to uh, a dinner uh, with, with me. And um, not like that should be any big deal, but they're friends, and, and neither one of them responded to my text at all. And in, like, I'm, I'm, a grown, I'm a grown man, and, and I, I still struggle with these insecurities, what other people think. Why? And I even, I brought it up to my wife. Why do you think they didn't text me back? Maybe they didn't see it. No, it said read. I can see what time they actually read my text. Like, I know they read that. Like, they didn't. And then I called and left a voicemail. One of them responded to the voicemail with another text, not with a phone call. And I'm like, what does this mean? And the other one didn't reply to the voicemail. What does that mean? Like, do I text again? Do I leave it alone? Like, these are, I'm, okay, it's easy for you guys to go, no, don't text again. You're being pathetic. I know, but so are you. Like, this, <laughs> this is a real friend of mine. I don't, know, I don't know what to do with this. And the problem with my fear, especially when it comes to my rejection, is that they're, the, uh, the value they assign to me too much influences the value that I see in me. And the reason why that's a problem is nothing to do with my self-esteem or my ego. But this past week, while I'm writing this teaching, I'm being confronted with the truth from God himself that, Sean, your identity is tied up more in what others say about you than what I've said about you. That's why this is a problem. The problem isn't that I don't have self-esteem. <laughs> Trust me, sometimes I have too much. <laughs> the problem is that my value isn't coming from the right person. Yeah. Right? Or my, my, my security. I need them. Or, or my provision. I need what they can give or provide. And they aren't the source for the follower of Jesus. They aren't intended by God to be the source of any one of those things. My identity, my security, or my provision. But that's where my fear comes from. So this past week, I recognized that this fear in my heart over whether or not they like me, my fear was like a warning light in my head to tell me that I was getting something from someone that God intended me to get from him only. That's the problem with fear of rejection, is that I make other people my God. 
my little G God, but still my God. They determine my value. I let these other people be the source of my provision. I let these other people be the place of my my security. And God says, no one can give you ultimately what only I can give you. I determine your value, not them. It doesn't matter if she left you. That didn't make you of less worth. That might point out to you certain things in your life that need to change, but you don't change them so that she changes her opinion. You change them so you can be more like the person God intended you to be. Are you with me? And my security, my value, my meaning doesn't come from the number of likes I get on Instagram. Although I posted something this weekend on Instagram and I've looked to see how many likes I've gotten twice already. Like that's... Yeah. I told you, I'm the biggest hypocrite this weekend. Like, I I need these likes. Why? Because this is where I'm getting my value from. And God goes, that's why your fear has now become sin. Now you see who you worship more than me. The crowd. Yeah. That's my brokenness. My fear is a warning light that tells me that I'm worshiping someone besides God. That's what it does. Brings me to the first of only two points, and that is this. You have to choose who to disappoint ahead of time. Choose whose opinion matters most. Choose ahead of time whose opinion matters most. Because if you don't choose before the moment gets here, the moment will choose for you And when the moment passes, you're stuck with the consequences of the bad choice you made because you weren't prepared for the opportunity to make that choice. You didn't choose ahead of time whose opinion mattered most. So because you didn't choose ahead of time, you weren't prepared. And because you weren't prepared, you went with it. And now you regret it. There's a guy in the Bible who's the son of probably one of the most famous people who's ever lived in all of history. You'll know his dad. I doubt you'll know him. How many of you guys know who Rehoboam is? Rehoboam, anyone? 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 Anybody know anybody named Rehoboam? Anybody? 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 We don't name anybody after Rehoboam at all. We name a whole lot of people after his grandpa. My first name is named after his grandpa. My first name is David. I've got his grandpa's first name. We know a lot of friends, most of them Jewish friends, named Solomon. Solomon's famous. We know Solomon's. People name their kid Solomon, but nobody names their kid Rehoboam. Rehoboam had the best advantages, man. He comes from two of the most famous, most godly, most most blessed people in all of human history. His dad, his, his grandpa was known as being a man after God's own heart. And his dad was known, was titled by God as the wisest man who ever lived. And then his son is a flippin' moron. Rehoboam. What it means, honestly, is each one of of us is the consequences of our own choices, not our parents. Right? Someone's been living off the faith of other people for way too long. That's this kid. And I'll also say this. The brokenness of your past, of the parents, of the people that raised you, of the environment you came up in, doesn't predetermine your future brokenness either. And some of us are staying broken because we're assigning too much blame to other people for the choices we're making. 
I mean, if I'm broke, I can't blame this on mom or dad anymore. I'm broken because of the choices I've made and rebelliousness towards God, selfishness towards others, right? That's, that's the story of Rehoboam. Solomon dies. His son Rehoboam becomes king. He's the third in the lineage of his, grand, of his father David. That's all the kings are known as, and his father David, his father David. He, he either lived, lived as a godly man like his father David, or he, he rejected the Lord, uh, the, the God of his, his father David. And so this is Rehoboam's story. Uh, we're in 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. Uh, the leaders of Israel summoned him. Uh, this is Rehoboam. Uh, and then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel went to speak with Rehoboam. Uh, your father was a hard master, and Solomon was rough, man. He had an agenda. His dad gave him an agenda. His dad amassed this huge fortune in order to build the temple uh, that God would, 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 would dwell in. That It was a physical representation of the presence of God for all of mankind. And the Jews were intended to be a light on a hill, a city on a hill, where everybody in the world could see what it looks like to live under the authority of God and in relationship with him, free from the consequences of the sin, their sin. That's, that's what God intended. Intended. And, and, and Solomon had to drive the people really, 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 really hard. And, and, and they were willing to go along with it because they knew that this is, they, they knew where they were going. And they all agreed to get there together. So everybody was on board with it. But they're, they're exhausted. Like, like they're, just, they're just beat up. And they're just, man, we just, we just need a break. So they, they sit them down. And in verse 4, your father was a hard master, they said. Lighten the harsh labor demands and heavy taxes that your father imposed on us. Then we will be your loyal subjects forever. Forever. Like, like, just please, just can you just like, like, wouldn't that be nice? They, they, they give us the, uh, the toll tax. For, remember that, remember they, they taxed us for the turnpike, and they said that once that was paid for, that tax would go away, and they, they just kept it on us. Dang it, remember that? And like, we're still paying for that. that we're still paying for, for, for I-90, I think. Like, I, they never give you back the taxes that they, they take, and they're just saying, your dad taxes for stuff, but now that it's built, can you, can you, can you lower the taxes again now? Like, can we, can we keep some more of the money that, that we've been making? Uh, Rehoboam replied, give me three days to think this over, then come back for my answer. So the people went away, uh, verse 6. Then King Rehoboam discussed the matter with the older men who had counseled his father. The wise, the wise, the wise men, right? The wisest man who ever lived. Like his crew, the guys he never made decisions with. Like this, this council of, like this is like the wisdom table of all wisdom tables. Like these guys, like can you, like these guys are it. And, and he's got access to all of their collective wisdom from decades of experience with their father. Uh, and, and, and he gets to consult with them. And so he sits down with like the wisest collection of men on the earth at the time uh, to discuss the matter with them, uh, that with his father Solomon. And he says, what is your advice? He asked, how should I answer these people? Verse 7. The older counselors replied, if you are willing to be a servant to these people today, if you're willing to recognize that leadership is more about service than it is authority, if you'll look at leadership biblically, like if that's how you'll consider your leadership responsibilities as a platform on which you serve the people, uh, if you are willing to be a servant to these people today and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your loyal subjects. That, that's, would you guys agree that that's good counsel? It's, it's great counsel. Like This is awesome. Um, but but, but he, he, he's not, not sure about their counsel, for whatever reason. And verse 8 says this, but Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older men and instead asked the opinion 
of the young men that he had grown up with uh, who were now his advisors. So he's got these older guys who are friends with his dad, but he's got this other group of guys that are his friends. These are his boys. They all kind of came up together. And so he goes and he checks with them on what they think he ought, he ought to do. Verse 9 says, uh, what is your advice, he asked them. How should I answer these people who want me to lighten the burdens imposed by my father? And I, and I think that it's funny and also telling and predictive that often when we have tough choices to make, that we look for people who will give us an answer that flavors the opinion we already had. You notice how biased we are when we ask for advice? Have you ever asked your spouse what you think, what she thinks you ought to do, and then she tells you? <laughs> and then you go ask somebody else? Why'd you go ask somebody else? You didn't like what she said. Why? Because what she said might have been selfless. It wasn't going to benefit me. It might have been the right thing. It just wasn't the thing I wanted to do. That's what we do anytime somebody gives us advice that we don't what? Want. That we don't like. The problem wasn't that it wasn't the advice we needed. It was just the advice he didn't want. So he goes and he looks for somebody to give him an opinion that makes him feel better about himself. Verse 10, the young men replied, this is what you should tell those complainers who want a lighter burden. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. And then he wrote a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It was easier for him to say no to the older men than the younger men because it was the younger men whose affection and approval he wanted more than the older guys. How often do we make decisions based more on what people around us think than what we know in our heart is the right thing to do or what godly or wiser people have asked us or have counseled us? Three days later, according to verse 12, Jeroboam and all the people returned to hear Rehoboam's decision just as the king had ordered them. Verse 13, but Rehoboam spoke harshly to the people. He rejected the advice of the older counselors and followed the counselor, counsel of his younger advisors. And he told the people, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. What a flipping moron. That guy Jeroboam, who was one of the captains of the army under his father Solomon, leads a rebellion against Rehoboam that brings civil war to Israel, and they divide into two nations. There's a northern nation of Israel, which is 12, 10 tribes of Israel, and then there's the southern nation of Judah. And they stay divided for the next... That one decision led to a 600-year-long civil war that was finally over, once Nebuchadnezzar came in and killed all of them and enslaved them and took them to Babylon. And that's when you get the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the lion's den. And, and you, you may be familiar with, but that, that, that one decision led to all of that, which leads me to the second and final point. That fear is seeking the approval of others at the expense of doing what is right. That's the fear of rejection that we're talking about. Fear causes you to seek the approval of others at the expense of doing what is right. 
The problem is that our fear of rejection says that God's approval of me isn't enough. I need theirs. I love the story of that guy in our church, and I've brought it up from, I've, give me a better story, and I'll use it. The auto body guy in our church, right? The auto body guy who's been fired from four jobs because in the auto detailing and, and repair business, uh, the insurance companies expect that the insurance companies will tack on and lie about the price of repairs by 10%. So all the body shop owners will have their body shop managers go to the book and determine how much the repair should cost and then add 10% to bilk the insurance companies from that extra money. But this guy in our church, he won't do it because he knows it's wrong. He doesn't struggle with this fear of rejection that I do. I don't know what I would do. Like, what would you do, right? You've been fired from your fourth body shop now. And all you have to do is do what everybody does. And what the insurance companies are even expecting you to do, right? You know what I would do? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know what I would do. I, I don't, I don't want to say that I would. I want to keep my job as pastor, so I'm not going to answer that question right now. <laughs> But I've compromised for less. I remember when I got into ninth grade, after seventh and eighth grade, and I went to a new school, they were all picking on the fat kid, and his name was Elaine Rivas. And in my school in Florida, there were a lot of Cubans and Puerto Ricans. And Cubans and Puerto Ricans, they didn't like each other in Florida, back in the 80s at least. They were cool with a gringo, but they no gusto each other, Right? And in our school, Elaine worked in a shirt factory that his dad owned. Marcos's dad was in a gang and was stabbed to death in San Juan. Like, he's in a gang. He was cool. Marcos was the first kid I ever knew who skated. He drew checkerboards on his vans before vans had checkerboards on their vans. That's a, in fact, when I saw checkerboard vans the first time, I was like, holy cow, they copied Marcos. That's really what I thought, Right? And so everybody, since Marcos was the cool guy and Elaine was the nerdy guy, everybody picked on Elaine. And I was more than willing to do it too, just to make sure that they weren't picking on who. I remember getting on my hands and knees behind Elaine, and Marcos ran up to front of him and pushed him, and he couldn't back up, and he tripped over me and he fell, and he fell over sideways on the back of my heel and broke my big toe. He really did break my big toe. And when I stood up and said he broke my toe, everybody punched him for falling crooked. <laughs> I know what I would do. I'm just saying, every time I've allowed your opinion of me to change what I know I should do next, I take God off his throne in my heart and I put you there. And that's why God says, Sean, this is a problem, dude. You have got to get a hold of your fear. It's going to keep you from being everything I've ever planned on you being. You don't need the affection and approval of Marcos Chico to be lovable. You already are because you're mine. And if, and if, those, if they don't see it, they don't see it. I mean, I had no idea what God had waiting around the corner for me. Because in the moment, I didn't trust that he would someday bring me what I needed. 
So I compromised to get it now. Not knowing that if I would just obey God, I would become the one. And eventually my heart turned back towards God. And then he brought me Billy Jane and then our awesome kids. And like I'm thankful. Every, I'm unbelievably grateful for the life that God has given me. But I look at all the ways that I've compromised in pursuit of your affection for me. That I know for a fact I don't deserve anything. But by God's grace, he pointed out why I was afraid of you. And when I recognized the sin was idolatry behind my fear of your affection, I was able to take you off his throne and put him there and start making more godly choices, which led to a life that God intended, which brought me to the destination that he's always planned, which I would have gotten none of had God not shown me why I was so afraid to be unpopular. And now I know from experience how my pursuit of popularity was the greatest threat to everything God intended to do in me and through me. And now I can say with confidence that it doesn't matter if those guys text me back. Or return my voicemail. It just causes me to ask, why did I text them in the first place? Did I need them to like me? I had this conversation this weekend. Why, why, did, I, why, did, I need, why did I text them in the first place? Because I wanted them to see me as somebody who could provide them an opportunity they couldn't get without me. Was that, was that what that was about? Because that's what it's about, that I'm putting myself on God's throne. Is it because I needed them to think I was whatever? Then I'm putting them on God's throne. Now, my, my motivation had better be simply to be a blessing to them and give them an opportunity for whatever God could do at that moment. But if it was anything short of that, it was sin. That's all fear does for me now. Fear is like the radar detector in my heart to show me when I'm tempted to take God off his throne and put somebody else there. It should do the same for you. I'll wrap this up with a quick story about Rehoboam's great-grandson. Rehoboam's great-grandson is now the king of just the two smaller tribes in the south, the kingdom of Judah. So there were two Jewish nations for over 600 years, Israel and Judah. And this happened because Rehoboam was a moron. Actually, Rehoboam was just led by his fear of rejection. He wanted to be cool. He wanted to do what his friends wanted him to do, and that led him away from what God wanted him to do, which had consequences for generations and generations and generations. But his grandson's son was a guy named Jehoshaphat. How many of you guys have ever heard that phrase, jumping Jehoshaphat? Okay, I, I don't know where that... I, the only guy I know in all of history, Jehoshaphat, is this guy, right? And he's in 1 Kings chapter 22. Then during the third year, King Jehoshaphat of Judah, that's the southern king, kingdom of Israel, uh, went to visit King Ahab of Israel. So King Ahab was the northern ten. Jehoshaphat was the southern, southern ten. Um, Ahab was a grandson of... Jeroboam, and, and Jehoshaphat was a great-grandson of Rehoboam. Um, uh, during the visit, the king of Israel said to his officials, do you realize that the town of Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and yet we've done nothing to capture it from the king of Aram? Then he turned to Jehoshaphat, and he asked, will you join me in battle to recover Ramoth Gilead? 
Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, Why, of course, you and I are as one. My troops are your troops. My horses are your horses. Then Jehoshaphat added this, But first, let's find out what God says. The grandson learned the lesson the the great-grandpa never learned. But first, let's see what God wants us to do. This made Ahab mad because Ahab didn't care what God wanted to do. He just wanted to take back more territory, and he knew he needed his armies. He was more than willing to give him his armies, but only if this is what God wanted. You can read the rest of the story if you want in 1 Corinthians chapter 22. We're not going to uh, for, for, the, for, the, for the sake of time, uh, but, but here's a few questions. Um, what, I, what I love, though, is that Jehoshaphat had chosen that he was going to please God first, regardless of what other people, what other people thought. And, and so I'm going to ask you, what's your first instinct? When you've got a tough choice to make, and you start thinking about the consequences of each choice, what's your first instinct? Is your first instinct, what does God think about how this is going to affect me? What does God think about what I'm about to do right now? What does God think that I should do next? Or is your question, what will they think? What will they think? What will they think? Um, There will come a day when I won't care what anybody else thinks anymore. It's not today. I still care. I'm trying not to care more than I care what he thinks. And that's this constant tension I struggle with every single week, with every single text that isn't returned Every single choice, to be honest, when somebody asks me an unpopular opinion, I, I still, I can't say that I've, I've got this one nailed down, but I, I know what part of my heart is broken, which is going to help me get that part fixed again. And when I catch it, if I can call a quick timeout, it helps me to make a more appropriate decision because the fear shows me what I'm, what, what, what I'm replacing uh, God with. I, I want to read you their obituaries, the two kings. First Kings chapter 14, verse 22, it said this, During Rehoboam's reign, the people of Judah did what was evil in the Lord's sight, provoking his anger with their sin, for it was even worse than that of their ancestors who never knew God. Rehoboam, though, chose to seek God's approval of his actions, not his boys, and it was said of him, Jehoshaphat was a good king. Follow the example of his father Asa, who was the only other king between him and David that had been a godly man his entire life, and he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. Someday all I will care about is whether I did what I was supposed to do, not other people said about what I did do. Someday I'll care only that my kids said I followed Jesus, not whether or not you thought I followed Jesus. Someday the only thing I'll want to care about is whether or not my neighbors felt loved by me more than whether or not you thought I loved my neighbors as I should. Jesus said that the right path was narrow because of the few people who chose it. So it really is okay if what I do isn't acceptable to most people. Jesus kind of predicted that. And then he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter, uh, excuse me, that was in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 15, he said, if people hate me for doing what is right, 
Why would you think that doing what is right will make you loved by everybody? So if I do right and your boyfriend breaks up with you, let him. Let him. You having a boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't make you any more or less valuable. Your value comes from the one who came up with the idea of you. It has never been affected by what anybody else thinks. It doesn't matter how many followers you have, how popular you are, or how much money in the bank. I know rich people who are some of the most miserable, and I know poor people who are miserable. I guess if you're going to be miserable either way, be rich. <laughs> but you're still miserable, what the freak? Be, be right with God. That way you don't miss any of the stuff he had planned. I want to give you a few verses that you can hang on to that might give you the confidence to do right when you're afraid to. Psalm chapter 118, verse 6. The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can a mere man do to me anyway? And there's nothing they're going to do to me that God didn't see coming, that he didn't already have worked into the story of my life. And if it means that I, as a body shop guy, get fired, I just know that God's got another job for me. And you know what he does? He's been fired from several body shops for doing the right thing. You know what he's never lost? His house. You know what he hasn't lost? His kids. You know what he hasn't lost? His wife. I don't care what you think about his retirement nest egg. That guy's freaking winning. Right? Because he knows who he's trying to please. And he chose wisely. Let's pray. God, help me not to be afraid what anybody thinks about me. I mean, it's appropriate for me to live my life in such a way that I'm not blatantly offensive unnecessarily. God, this isn't a license to be a jerk. None of us have that kind of freedom. God, you said it is important for those who are without faith to think well of the way that we live our lives around them. Um, that we are to, to love our enemies, to forgive unforgivable people, and to serve the selfish. But we're only called to do those things because you did those things when we were those ways. You loved us when we were unlovable. You've forgiven us for unforgivable things, and you served us when we're selfish. You're just calling us to be a better version of the people that we've made ourselves into. You're asking us to allow you to make us into the person you created us to be. And God, it really is our fear of other people that's going to keep this from happening. Help us to let go of that. God, let our fear of what somebody else thinks of us, our fear of rejection, our fear of being alone, our fear of losing a job, our fear. God, let our fear be a radar warning in our heart of what we love and worship more than you. Help us to name it for what it is, idolatry. Help us to confess that it's wrong. Help us to seek our value, our security, and our provision from you, the one who tells us who we are, the one who gives us all we need, and who will not let anything happen to us outside of what you can use for something that brings you glory and us good. That is what we claim in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.